Take out your Bibles. We are in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. As we've been continuing to look at the life of King David, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We mentioned last time as we were going through uh, our study, there are some differences. There's a lot of similarities, as if, and I don't know if you've been reading both, if you're studying, following along, but it, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, in 2 Samuel, a lot of these same stories are recorded for us. This one we're going to look at tonight, by the way, is in 2 Samuel 24, if you're taking notes. But there's a lot of differences. There's several things that are left out of David's life as we study through now in, in, in the Chronicles record. One of those we mentioned last time, the, the, the sin with Bathsheba. It's not recorded in First Chronicles. But we do look at tonight a sin in David's life that came on later in his life. We're going we're gonna to see this as we go through chapter, chapter 21, First Chronicles. And I will be referencing back to Second uh, Samuel 24 a little bit. Notice first verse 1. It says, then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, as we initially compare this to, and I will, I will read back and forth a couple of verses from this. Second uh, Samuel 24 starts out, now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it incited David against them to, num- to say, go number Israel and Judah. When we look at those, there appears to be a contradiction. It, it says that it's the Lord's anger in 2 Samuel that, and then that, that the Lord enticed David to. But we see clearly, as it, as it says here, that, that it was Satan that stood up and moved David, tempted David to do this. Now, as we, as we have said before and as we study the word of God, we understand, and we talked of this last time, The enemy that we face is a very real enemy and a very powerful enemy, but is not not on an equal playing field with our Heavenly Father, with our our King. God is sovereign and in control. The enemy cannot come against us, cannot do anything without God's permission. We see that in Job. Job is another example. Where in the first chapter of Job, we see there's, a, there's a, a, a meeting going on in heaven. And the angelic beings are there. And Satan comes there. And, and God, kind of bragging on his man Job, said, have you seen my servant David? And Satan said, well, yeah, I have. And of course he loves you. Of course he, of course he uh, worships you. Of course he lives for you. Let me at him for a little while, paraphrasing. And God gives him permission to do certain things to Job, but no further. We see Jesus speaking to Peter, saying that Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And, and we would love it if the response was that Jesus then said, but I said, no way, Jose. But Jesus said, when you have returned, when you have turned back, permission was granted to Satan to sift Peter. And we see here, no doubt then also in this situation, Satan was given permission to tempt David. And we're going to get into what that that specific thing was with David in a moment. But before we move off of this, we see in, in verse 24, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And we don't know why. It does not specifically tell us why the, the, the anger of the Lord was burning against Israel. But again, there is a large chunk of of history that is left out of the First Chronicles record. Since our study last time and where we are tonight, there's a gap that's missing several years that includes the rebellion of David's son Absalom. And when David's son Absalom rebelled against David, many within Israel followed Absalom. And some commentators believe, and I happen to be along with that after reading it through, it seems to make sense, is the most, most plausible thing, not going to be dogmatic about it, but that that is where God is coming against the anger against Israel, because again, they don't follow what God has said. This David is the Lord's anointed, and Absalom rebels, many come against him. So that, many believe that that is this rebellion that God is going to judge Israel for, 
But as we look in the record here, one, one thing I want to make note of, look in our verse here. It says, then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, that would seem on the surface that David had no choice. Satan just moved him. But guys, we're not pawns in some cosmic supernatural game. We have, especially as Christians, we, we, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the power over sin, no matter how strong the temptation may come. Paul will write to the, this letter in 1 Corinthians that he's using some other things with the children of Israel in the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 11, he says, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction to whom the ends of the ages have come. All of this stuff that we study and we look at on Wednesday nights not, is not just a history lesson. We, we look at that, we talk of that often. This is recorded for our learning, for our instruction. And the same is true for the stories that we're looking at, in, at tonight. Verse 12 says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you such as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. There is no temptation that comes against you or I that we cannot stand up to. So many people say, you know, the devil made me do it. First of all, we give way too much credit to the devil. But let, me just, let me just burst your bubble for a second. You, if you say the devil made me do it, Satan made me do it, let me, I'm just going to burst your bubble. You're not that important. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. And chances are, he's got bigger fish to worry about than you. Just could be wrong. But the bottom line is his minions, the demonic forces that are against us, are powerful. But our God is much more powerful. And again, he provides for us a way through it, a way of escape. We do not have to succumb to the temptation. Being tempted is not a sin. And we do not have to succumb to that. So it says here in this, in this verse that, that, that Satan moved David. He was tempted, but he did not have to follow through with that. So what is the sin that he, that he fell prey to? Well, as we continue looking, this temptation comes to David. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know the number. Joab said, may the Lord add to his, notice his, capital H, his people, a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all, the, all my Lord's servants? Hasn't God given them to you as your servants? But they're his people. Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be, why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Interesting word that verse that's or statement that's added in the second Samuel record. Joab says, why does my Lord David delight in this thing? Why, why do you delight in this? Why are, why is it that you're, that you're so passionate about having these, these, the people numbered? Now, is it a sin to number the people? Well, it says in Exodus chapter 30, the Lord also spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census, the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Now, a census in and of itself is never stated as being forbidden in the Bible. In the Talmud, there are numerous indications in there where the, where the rabbis interpret this verse to mean that it's against God's law to take a census. But we see here that God says, if you do, this is why. And bottom line, most, most believe it's because God, when you're numbering here, there's a ransom to be paid to the Lord because, again, it shows they belong to the Lord. They are his. And with that, you don't number things that aren't yours. 
the, the, the sin that is involved here is David's pride. David is later on in his life. He is trying to number this to see how, how large his military is. We're going to see that it's military men that are counted. How large of a military he's amassed. They're at a peaceful time here. They're not, they're not fighting any wars. Is he, we don't know the motivation behind it other than, again, a pride thing. Some believe, too, it maybe is a, is a lack of faith in the Lord at this point in his life. Do I, I got to make sure that my military is big enough and strong enough. But really, it, it boils down again to a pride thing. And remember, back in 1 Corinthians, Paul warns us all, take heed lest ye fall. And this is important when we look at a man like David, a man after God's own heart, a man who, who passionately follows after the Lord, and he's late in life. He's not a teenager making this mistake. He's late in his life. And I say, that, guys, no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, we always need to take heed lest we fall. If we think, man, I got this thing licked. I have no problem in this area. I, I have no issues. That's where the enemy is going to attack. You leave your armor off because, man, I don't have anything to worry about there. The enemy will attack. We see the, him attacking here. He says that, notice in verse 2, that I may know their number. Why would why should you, this be because why do you delight in this thing? It's interesting. David himself will write, "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." He's he's delighting himself in his heart. <laughs> Proverbs. David's son, Solomon, will write a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motive. You could say, well, there's nothing wrong with taking a census. God didn't specifically say I couldn't do this, but the motive. Proverbs uh, 21, 2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. It's not just the action. It's the heart behind the action. We can, we can justify actions all we want, but if our heart's not right, it's sin. And we're going to see, this. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't go long. David will recognize this very quickly. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David, and all of Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. We know that it wasn't God using this as, a, as part of that, but we know again, based on verse 1 of, in 2 Samuel 24, that God was displeased with Israel. There was, they, they too had sinned against God. And, and so this is, there, there's more behind this than just what David did. Now this census took about nine, ten months to, to take place. We see that in, in 2 Samuel. So he had plenty of time to call the whole thing off. But it's when the number finally comes back. And no doubt, even the spirit speaking to David in his heart saying, ah, my heart is in the wrong place here. Because it says in verse 8, David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David, as we've seen, and we study through his life now twice, we see David's not a sinless man. David made mistakes. David made big mistakes. They were grievous sins. And the word of God records even the heroes, their sin. But David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man, as we see, a life that was lived passionately for God, following after God. All of, you know, the Psalms that are written as we see this life that is, that is laid out before us. It's not a life controlled by sin. This is a life controlled by, by God and a passion to follow him, but yet still sin. And John 
writes in 1 John chapter 1, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, and I've used this quote before from Adrian Rogers, being a Christian does not mean you won't sin anymore. It means you won't sin and enjoy it anymore. We need to, as David did, and as, as John tells us, when, when sin, when we are convicted of sin in our life as a Christian, the Holy Spirit will, will convict us of sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but that conviction. And we need to, as David does here, keep a very short record with God. That conviction comes, we repent. But the Bible is clear. You claim to be a Christian, yet your lifestyle is marked by sin. You're walking in darkness and you're deceiving yourself. We as Christians, we walk in the light as he is in the light. That, our, our, our life needs to be defined in a way that we, we're following after the Lord. Our, our life isn't defined by our sin. Our life is defined by the righteousness that we walk in in him. And when we sin, we, we confess that sin. And again, God is faithful, righteous just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, it goes on. There's, there's consequences, consequences for the action. There's consequences for our sin. Even though we are forgiven in Christ, there's still consequences for sin. We're going to see the consequences here. But again, God has a greater purpose. He works all things together for his glory always. And we'll see that as we continue through the chapter. God spoke to Gad, David's seer, a prophet, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes or with the, with the sword of your enemies and, and overtake you or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, Consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So David is given, God gives David three options as to how this sin is going to be dealt with. Notice, first of all, three years of famine. Now, looking at this and kind of wonder what would lead David to choose what he will ultimately choose, three years of famine will really affect largely one group of people, the poor. The rich will be able to overcome and, and take care of this, but it will really affect that. We see next the three months to be swept away before your foes. That will really affect more than obviously those that are out there fighting, others re removed from that. But the third one, three days of the angel of the, of the Lord to go through and pestilence and, and people, people die. And notice David's response. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. That this has been brought upon, this, this has been brought upon the people because of my sin. He doesn't understand that the Lord is judging Israel as well. He doesn't get that at this point. But he said, I will fall. Please let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. David knows that. David has experienced that already. That God's mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. God's mercies endure forever. Mercy, as we understand, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And the mercy of God, David has said, I will any day of the week take my chances with, the, with God because, of he, because he is merciful. So he places his trust in this to, to, to God. And whatever God decides to do, he's, he's good with. 
So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. Notice 70,000 men of Israel fell. I don't know what your initial reaction to that is, but one might be, well, that's not fair. 70,000 people, 70,000 people fell because, again, David's sin, and even if it was this other thing, 70,000? Well, again, part of, part of those things, whenever we say, well, that's not fair, God's not fair, that does one of two things, well, does two, both of two things, two of two things. One, it elevates our position and understanding of ourselves. It raises, <laughs> raises us. And secondly, it lowers God. Paul, or I'm sorry, David, again, writing this. This is Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous, absolutely perfect, altogether. God has never made a judgment that was in error, that was done in vindictively or anything like that. He, they are all perfect, perfectly righteous. He goes on to say, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than the, than the much fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, as when, when we are disciplined by God and we go through that process, nobody likes it when, when we're going through it. Nobody likes discipline when we go through that. And he likens it to a child being disciplined by earthly parents. Nobody likes it. But we understand that a perfect God whose judgments are perfect, his discipline toward us is perfect. The end result is holiness. The end result is, is a purified walk with him. Walking in righteousness, the fruit of righteousness. God, verse 15. God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Can you imagine that sight? Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. Covered with sackcloth, that's, as we pointed out before, that's a sign of humility. Absolutely, totally humbling themselves. For anybody, especially the king, wearing sackcloth, humbling themselves before the Lord, here now falling on their, on their faces, David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Oh, my Lord God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people that they should be plagued. Verse 18, then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which was the word of God, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him and hid themselves, and Ornan was threshing wheat. So Ornan, this Jebusite's up there threshing wheat. The threshing floor is usually on a high place, and we'll, I'll, I'll explain the high place here in, in a moment. They're up there just minding their own business, threshing, threshing the wheat. Him and his four sons, they turn around and they see what David saw. Angel, an angel in the sky the angel of God with his, with his sword drawn. And they hid themselves. I, I get it. <laughs> As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. 
Then David said to Ornan, give me the site of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord for the full price you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan said to David, take it for yourself and let my Lord King do what is good in his sight. See, I'll even give you the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for wood and the wheat and the grain offerings. I'll give it all. He's like, Kid, do whatever, man. Take everything. Do, just go, you know. And he's even saying, I'll give it to you. You don't even have to pay me. I, just seeing that sight up there he's, and, and knowing what's been going on, he's like, whatever it takes to stop this, I'll even give it to you. But notice that the king said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord for a, for, an, for a burnt offering, that which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. David built an altar for the Lord there and offered a burnt offering and a peace offering. And he called to the name of the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. So here we see David buying this, this threshing floor, building an altar himself. And again, he's later on in life, as we're going to get into the next couple of chapters, David's, David's approaching 70. If, and in verse, chapter 23, 70 years old. He builds the altar. He sacrifices here, and it says that God answers with fire. God accepts the offering that, that David makes there. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. Second Samuel records for us that the Lord moved by prayer for the land, moved by the prayer of David that said, God, have mercy on the land. Forgive me. I've acted foolishly. I've acted, I've acted in ignorance. I've done very foolishly. Forgive me and heal the land. And God responds. At that time, verse 28, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he offered sacrifice there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering were in the high places at Gibeon at that time. But David could not go before to inquire of the Lord, for he was terrified by this sword of the angel of the Lord. Chapter 22, verse 1 is a continuation. Then David said, this is the house of the Lord, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This place where this is all taking place, this threshing floor, is what we know now as the Temple Mount, where, where the, the Dome of the Rock stands now, but where Solomon will build the temple. That's, this is the, the, the Temple Mount area. The, there's a difference that's offered for the, the price, if we look at 2 Samuel, the 200 shekels of silver, that was for the threshing floor that is there. The 600 shekels of gold for the entire, this is Mount Moriah, where this is, this is situated. A very important place. Mount Moriah is where Abraham went to offer Isaac. And as he was obedient, following what the command of the Lord was, to offer his son as a burnt offering, and just before he does, God stops him from doing it. Says, I know that your faith towards me, you've demonstrated that. I will provide myself an offering fulfilled initially there as God provided a ram for him to offer then. But on that same location is where Jesus would go, this is Calvary, where Jesus would go to the cross, providing himself as the ultimate sacrifice. All of that taking place on Mount Moriah. Hugely important place, obviously, history. Pivotal, this is where the millennial reign will take place. Jesus will rule and reign from, from Mount Moriah on that mountain, Isaiah tells us. Notice that it's Ornan the Jebusite. This, this particular place, we talked about the city of David, that David had now taken over that for the first time, had controlled that land. But for whatever reason, this particular plot of land still owned by a Jebusite, not a, not a Jewish person. Yet, we see the bill of sale right here. The bill of sale, 600 shekels of gold. So if anybody wonders who, who, who has legal right to the Temple Mount, never been sold. <laughs> 
bought right here. Bill a sale for us right in our hands. David says, this, this is the place. God has answered, answered this prayer with fire. This is the place. And again, as we will see in subsequent chapters, um, this is where Solomon will build the temple. Verse 2, so David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel and to set stone cutters, to hewn out stones to build the house of God. David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps and more bronze than could be weighed and timbers of cedar logs beyond number for the Sidonians and the, and the Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all the lands. Therefore now, I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. We know, as we've seen previously, David's heart was to build the temple for God, to build a house for, for the Lord, to build the temple. But God said, no. You're, we'll see again in, in a moment, but you, no, your son will build it. But that didn't stop David from doing all of this other stuff, to make all of the preparations, even to get the plans ready. He's going to have the blueprints for Solomon. He's going to have all of the materials for Solomon ready to go. And again, I, I think it bears repeating. We've touched on this the last couple of weeks. When God says no to you and yes to someone else, what is your reaction to that? You're like, huh, that's not fair. Or is it, praise God, let me help you. Whatever it is that you need, I want to be a part of that. Whatever, how can I come alongside you? How can I work alongside you in this? Because ultimately, it's not ours anyway. It's all the Lord's. It's for his glory. And if he says no, there's a reason. David made ample preparations before his death. Then he called for his Solomon, his son Solomon, charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Now, that does not mean that David was sinning in doing that at all. He was, as a matter of fact, fulfilling what what he was called to do as, as this king to overtake these areas. We've, we've seen many times he prayed, should I go? God said, yes. Should I do this? God said, no, do it this way. God even giving battle plans to David. So the fact that he shed much blood is not a sinful thing. It's just that this is God's way of saying, this is the house that's going to be built. He explains it here. Verse 10, behold, a son will be born to you. You shall be, it, he shall, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. And that is when the temple will be built. It's not a punishment again to David. And I love that as we've seen this, God, David never looked at it as punishment. He looked at it as, okay, that's the will of God. He shall build a house for my name and shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God, just as, as he has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed. We looked at Psalm 1 last week. The law of the Lord, meditating on it, delighting in it, like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in season, whatever you do, prospering. David's saying that same thing. You will prosper if you follow after the Lord. You do what he says. You, you, you're passionate about, about God and his word. Now behold. With great pains, I have prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold and a million talents of silver. That's 
3,750 tons of gold and 37,500 tons of silver. Nice to start a building project with that in the bank. And bronze and iron beyond weight. There's just so much of that, we're not even going to bother to weigh it. And they are in great quantity, also timber and stones I have prepared, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are many workmen with you, stone cutters and masons of stone and carpenters, and all the men are skillful in every kind of work. Of the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and the iron, there is no limit. <laughs> Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. I love this verse because the Bible tells us that the one that we serve owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The, ones that, the, the, the God that we serve, his resources are limitless. And we simply need to arise and get to work. Where God, and I love that it's, it's simple, but it's so profound. Where God guides, God provides. When God is in front of this and he is leading and guiding, he will provide for us as we go, stepping out in faith. I'm not, not just monetarily, but in, in whatever it is that we have. If God is laying something on your heart and leading you, step out in faith. Well, I can't do that. I'm not equipped to do that. You will be. By the time your foot hits the ground in that step, you will need what you have. You will have what you need for the next step. And oftentimes that's how he does it, just that one step at a time. But arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now, set your heart and your soul and seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore. And build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into the house that is built for the name of the Lord. Not just Solomon, but those around, God bringing those that are, are all of the workmen, all of that together, providing in every regard. Chapter 23, again, now David is at, at the end of his life. About 70 years old at this point. First, King chapter, First Kings chapter 1 tells us um, some information around this because it says in verse 1 here, now when David reached an old age, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. In First Kings chapter 1, we see that one of David's other sons taking advantage of the fact that David is now old and weak, his name's Adonijah, he says, I'm going to be king. I'm going to kind of run an end around here. He, he, gets, he gets some men to buy in on this whole thing. They go away. They don't invite Solomon. They don't invite some of David's closest people. And they sneak away. And they have this little making, themselves, making him king kind of thing and, and start celebrating. Word gets back to David. And so he has Solomon anointed basically co-regent with him. Because David's not dead yet. <laughs> so they rule together at this point. He gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levite. Now, we're going to cover a couple of chapters here pretty quickly because there's a, there's a lot of names. And if you guys want to have fun together at home later on, you can take turns reading verses. Um, but the Levites, notice verse 3, the Levites were numbered from 30 years old and upward. First of all, Numbers chapter 4 tells us that the way that God lined this out was that the priests would work from the ages, or the Levites would work from the ages of 30 to 50, preparing, learning until the age of 30. At the age of 30, going into service, they would work until the age of 50 when they would basically kind of have forced retirement at that point. They're numbered at this point because things are going to be changing. They're moving the, from the tabernacle that is outside Jerusalem, and when the temple is built, things are going to be radically different as to how things are done because they're not setting up, tearing down the temple. They're not carrying, moving the ark. Things are going to be different now. They're numbered. It even uses the word census here, but for the right reasons this time. 
This isn't a, a pride thing for David. This is a practical thing. We've got to get some things put in place in preparation for when the temple is finally erected here. The number of the census of the men, 38,000 of those 24,000 were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 were officers and judges that were going to be used then throughout the, the land outside of Jerusalem to, for the other cities and, and areas. 4,000 were gatekeepers. 4,000 were, were praising the Lord with the instruments which David gave for giving praise. David divided them into divisions according to the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So you got the Gershonites there for a few verses, the Kohathites, the Maronites, Merarite. Verse 24, these were the sons of Levi according to the father's households, even the heads of the father's households of those of them who were counted in number of the names by the census doing the work of the service of the, of the house of the Lord from 20 years old and upward. We see again in, in a moment that's mentioned again, 20 years old. David makes a change with that, numbering them to 20 years old and upward, not 30 years old and upward. We don't have any more information on it than that. Now, again, did he get that word from the Lord? We're going to assume so. And doing that maybe was a very practical thing. Perhaps these were like interns or doing some extra work until they reached that age of 30. We don't have any more information, but it does say 30 years old and upward in verse 3, changed to 20 years old and older in verse 24. Verse 25, for David said, the Lord God of Israel has given rest to his people and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. Also, the Levites will no longer need to carry the tabernacle and all its utensils for its service. For by the last words of David and the sons of Levi are numbered from 20 years old and upward. For their office is to assist the sons of Aaron. Now, the sons of Aaron were the priests. The Levites were the ones that served. All, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. In order to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. With the service of the house of the Lord in the, in the courts and the chambers, and in the purifying of all the holy things, even the work of the service in the house of the house of the Lord, and with the showbread, the fine flour for a grain offering, and unleavened wafers, and what is baked in a pan, and what is well mixed in all measures and volume and size, all of these things. There's there's so much work that is going on that needs to be done in this. After again, after the temple is there and everything starts going in Jerusalem. They are to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord and likewise in the evening. Morning and evening praise, praise services. Offer all the burnt offerings to the Lord on the Sabbath and the new moons and the fixed festivals and the numbers set by the ordinance concerning them continually before the Lord. You can imagine the undertaking that's involved in that and all the, the people that are needed to work through that. Thus they are to keep charge of the tent of the meeting and charge of the holy place and charge of the sons of Aaron, their relatives for the service the house of the Lord. Chapter 24. Now the divisions of the descendants of Aaron are these. The sons of Aaron were Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no sons, as recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 10, offering the strange fire before the Lord. After God had clearly laid out this is how this is to be done, they said they were going to do their own thing. And God struck them dead. Right, right in front of their father. They had no sons. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests. David with Zadok, the sons of Eleazar, and Ahimelech, the sons of Ithamar, divided them according to their offices for their ministry. Since more chief men were found from the descendants of Eleazar than the descendants of Ithamar, they divided them thus. There were 16 heads of the father's household, descendants of Eleazar, and eight of the descendants of Ithamar, according to their father's household. Going through this relatively quickly, just quick commentary as we move through this. But So they're dividing this up now into 24 segments that will be rotating their, their service as the priests that, that go through that. So they're, they're on for a time and then off. And there's 24 segments. And we're going to see that as, as that moves forward. But that's, that's the basis for, for what they're doing. Again, dividing up the work. And I, 
I love this because David is, is taking care of all of these things, all of this stuff. Again, he could have just said, you know what, Solomon, you deal with it. But until he takes his last breath, he's serving the Lord and setting all of these things in order and realizing that Solomon is young. He's inexperienced. He doesn't know these things. So I'm going to help. And again, how quickly can we get into that, that, that situation? What do you mean God tells me no and says yes to them? I'm more qualified than they are. I know more than they do. What, this doesn't even make any sense. Instead of, again, praising God that I can do this, I can help, I can, I can come alongside. Going through all of this stuff just to make sure that when Solomon gets that opportunity, that God opens that door, okay, construction starts now, everything's ready. I just, I love this heart of David in the. Thus, they were divided by lot. Now, we've seen this often as we, go, as we go through in the Old Testament. This was oftentimes a way to seek God's will in things, casting lots. Um, don't know exactly how that whole process worked. A lot believe that like in this particular situation, the 24 names were placed like names in a hat, drawing the names out of a hat in the particular order, trusting that God is guiding and leading the direction through that. This is an Old Testament thing. We only see one example of it in the New Testament when they're trying to figure out, okay, who's going to replace Judas? Never again is it, is it utilized because as believers, we now have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. We don't cast lots anymore. We go before the Lord, we pray, and we go as the Spirit prompts and, and leads us, and we follow that, and we get godly counsel from others, and we seek the Lord together, and he guides and leads through his Spirit. I find it interesting, <laughs> as people, people use the term, I don't know if you have, if you've heard this before, but people say, well, I, I put a fleece out, you know, and I put several fleeces out, and God is, you know, boom, 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 boom. Where do we get that from, putting a fleece out? From the word of God, but where? Gideon, right? That's, what, that's why we call it a fleece. Do you know why most of you could say Gideon? Because it's the only example of it in the Bible. The only time. And somehow we think like, well, that's, that's, that's the, that's the go-to thing. I got to put out a bunch of fleeces and see if that. No, 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 no. <laughs> what does the word of God say? And what is the Holy Spirit leading and directing me? You don't cast lots and put out fleeces. We have the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Well, they divided by lot, the one as for the other, for they were officers in sanctuary for the officers of God, both from the descendants of Eleazar. So they start going down now and they're going to start drawing out the names and putting them in order. And that's what the next several, several verses cover. The only one that I would draw your attention to in, in verse 10, the eight for Abijah, Luke chapter one we see that John the Baptist's father was a descendant of Abijah, and it was his turn of the 24 as they're going through. He comes up, he goes into the Holy of Holies and is told that he will have a son, John. Read Luke chapter 1 for the full story. We see down in verse 31, these also cast lots, just as their relatives' sons Aaron in the presence of David, the king of Zadok, Ahimelech, the heads of the father's households of the priests of the Levites, the head of the father's household, as well as those of his younger brother. And I just, I, I, God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of, of age. He's not a respecter of, of these. It, all of this is put together, and notice they're working alongside each other. The, the more seasoned and the younger. And I love how that is still God, how God desires to work in his body today. We work together in the ministry of the Lord. I don't know. How many of you were here this weekend? How many of you were blessed by the worship as our youth led us? Half the, half the worship team is our youth. I got to tell you, there's, there's an excitement over in that room. 
Do you ever feel like, eh, you need a little pick-me-up? We'll spend five minutes in the youth room. There's a room full of kids on fire for the Lord over there. And I know because of the leadership with Eddie and Andy and some of the other leaders over there, you're going to probably be seeing a whole lot more of them around. <laughs> and I hope that excites you. And I would challenge you, as you see this next generation of, of leaders within the church, take time to get to know them and pour into them. You have a lot to offer them experience, encouragement, coming alongside. They have a lot to offer with excitement and enthusiasm and passion. And we have a lot to offer that just again, as David, pouring in, providing for, and encouraging. Well, we'll stop there. I don't have time to get into chapter 25. We'll continue there. There's a few chapters of this where, again, we see some more of this preparation, and then we'll finish up hopefully next week with the last couple of chapters in First Chronicles, and then we move into the reign of King Solomon. Well, Lord, thank you again for your word, for the challenge of it as we see, again, we see your servant David, yet we see that he too struggled. He stumbled at times. He, he sinned, yet you are so faithful. And Lord, as we go through our desire, our heart is to be like David's, to, to follow after you fully and completely. But Lord, in those areas where we stumble, Lord, let us keep short records with you to repent, to, to immediately bring that to you. Lord, because we know that you're faithful. Your word tells us that as we confess our sin, that you are faithful just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unright. Lord, go before us this week. Our desire is to follow after you, to be used by you. Lord, that we would be sensitive to, to hear your call, your direction, and to walk by faith. Thank you. Praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.